Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the President and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. It's good to be back. As you could tell, for anyone on video, I had some sun exposure in the past week. I was on vacation, which was really nice, good but it's good you. to be back. Yeah. Well, I was also traveling, so it's nice to be back. Although now, uh, for those living in Minnesota, you'll know that we're starting to get snow. So here it is, and I guess winter has started. That's right. But I was just in a tropical climate, and I know <laughs> we were just talking about a disease that is more prevalent in the tropics. There yeah. um, are people that are of, of tropical descent and that some new therapies that are out there. So maybe we could talk about that today. Yeah, what a great lead-in. So the disease that we were just talking about for everyone listening is sickle cell disease. And it's a disease that I've studied in my role as a clinical parasitologist because even though it's a terrible, potentially deadly disease, it probably evolved over time. It stuck around because it provides some protection from severe malaria. But, Bill, I'll, I'll rely on you and your expertise in hematopathology. If you have one copy of the gene, the sickle cell gene, it's all fine. But if you have two, that's where the problems really start. I don't know. Do you want to tell everyone a little sure. bit about it? Yeah, it shows that I'm still a card-carrying hematopathologist. That's uh, right. So I did spend a lot of time. We have a great lab here in DLMP. It has a decades-long history of studying hemoglobinopathies, including sickle cell disease, called our metabolic hematology laboratory. So yeah, so sickle cell is because of a mutation in the beta globin gene, right, which is part of the one of the genes that's for the tetramer of hemoglobin, which is alpha and beta genes, and alpha and beta chains, two of each. That's why it's a tetramer. So if you have one copy of this beta gene anomaly or mutation, it's actually protective against malaria. But if you're homozygous, then what happens is when the red cells lose oxygen, they sickle. They're no longer the nice discs with the little central indentation that you see in a normal red cell. They turn into little sickles or, you know, they become elongate. They don't make it through the microvasculature then. And then patients get into real problems. And it can even, to your point, be fatal. Certainly can be life-threatening and can be really impact quality of life. And there's a lot of variations on that, which is why we do a lot of testing within our laboratory. So it's not surprising that someone's been looking for a potential cure for this because right now there is none. Yeah, you know, this actually impacts multiple different areas of laboratory medicine. So in hematopathology and that specialized testing we offer at Mayo Clinic, and I got a chance to visit that laboratory. It's amazing what they do. And of course, there's not just hemoglobin S, but there's all these other types of hemoglobins. Bill, you know a lot more about these than I do that can also cause anemia and other problems. But then it also impacts transfusion medicine because these people end up very anemic because those sickle cells, once they take on that sickle morphology instead of your nice biconcave disc, is that they only last, is my understanding, for 20 or 30 days and they get destroyed. Yep. So then these people have they, profound anemia. They get cleared by the spleen. So right now, the, the standard of therapy is actually if for patients that have sickle cell disease, and it could be either homozygous or they can be have a, a, a single copy of hemoglobin S and be a beta zero thalassemia on the other globin locus, which is another not uncommon combination that you see in patients with sickle cell. But anyways, 
the treatment is essentially serial transfusion where you really need to keep enough of normal hemoglobin that you don't get to the hypoxia in the small vessels, which is where they sickle. So you don't need to replace, but you need to keep them above a level. I think typically it's above 20 or 30% of hematologists would know that better than I do, but, but you need to be at a, enough normal hemoglobin to actually offset the sickle cell disease. Uh, sickle cell trait means you're typically about 45% S and 55% normal hemoglobin. That's you won't get sickle cell disease from that. The only other situation where you can get have be homozygous for S or pseudo-homozygous because you have a beta zero thal is if you have hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin. Because fetal hemoglobin, you know, to get blood from the maternal vasculature has a higher affinity for hemoglobin. So what that means, if you have more hemoglobin F in your red cells, you won't get to that same hypoxia that causes because the hemoglobin F hangs onto the oxygen more tightly. It prevents the sickling from happening. So that's the other thing that we see. And we, you know, there are some drugs that can artificially uh, elevate hemoglobin F. And that's one of the therapies that's tried sometimes. But now there's a new therapy that's out there that we wanted to talk about that I know you and I have been discussing. Yeah, it's since it's such a terrible disease, sickle cell disease, when you have both copies of the, the hemoglobin F in your body, people have been looking for ways to help treat this. And right now, the only way that you could really get rid of it is with a bone marrow transplant. But then to do that, you have to have a donor who is closely related. And then, of course, you're immunocompromised, you're immunosuppressed for the rest of your life. So that is all sorts of concerns. But yeah, this exciting new therapy is being reviewed by the FDA. It's by a company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And it's a one-time gene therapy called Exacel. And it uses CRISPR. For those of you who haven't heard of CRISPR before, it stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> and it's naturally occurring DNA sequences. It's actually found in a lot of bacteria. And interestingly, it's actually remnants of DNA from bacteriophages. So viruses that attack bacteria and sometimes insert their DNA. So it comes from bacteria, but originally it came from viruses anyway. We've been able to harness it, and this has created this system that we can now use for gene editing. CRISPR is sometimes called genetic scissors, and if you pair it up with this Cas9 system, then you can basically go in and cut genes wherever you want, and then you can insert new genes or you can cut out harmful genes. And so, yeah, Bill, you and I were just talking about this. This could be used to go in and cut out genes so that you actually make it that you're more likely to have hemoglobin F to make up for your hemoglobin S, the undesirable yep. type of hemoglobin in these individuals. That's right. So yeah, so it's interesting, right? So it basically mimic the protective effects of hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin by mm -hmm. putting enough hemoglobin F in the red cells that they don't get to the low oxygen, which causes them to sickle. Normally yeah. that gets suppressed once you get out of the fetal stage, but it, essentially, it just turns off that suppression. So now all of a sudden, people have this fetal hemoglobin. Now, it's my understanding, Bill, that because it holds on so tightly, it's maybe not as ideal as normal hemoglobin. But I guess compared to sickle hemoglobin S, it's still much, much better. Yeah. If you have a high fetal hemoglobin, that's why it's actually babies don't get sickle. They don't have the manifestations of sickle cell disease. because, And also, the rate at which hemoglobin F turns off 
is dependent on having normal hemoglobin, so it can take longer for someone with hemoglobin S to go undergo that normal physiologic transition. So yeah, it has that, but in, in hemoglobin, people with homozygous S, it's protective. Interestingly, when we see high hemoglobin F in adults, also they have no hemoglobin A, normal hemoglobin, and then hemoglobin S, typically it triggers a big workup as to whether or not this is truly hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin or not. There's a variety of different genetic manifestations. There's some red cell tests that you can, or genetic causes, I should say, of HPFH. So if I didn't know that this therapy exists, it could have a really major impact on laboratories because we're going to start seeing patterns that we haven't seen before, right? So it's important to know about these things because it's going to change. We have to develop diagnostic criteria to evaluate for these sorts of gene therapy effects. Well, I'm glad you brought up some of the things we need to think about because first of all, all right, terrible disease, very cool that we could use this potential gene editing technology. But there are all these issues we have to consider, like you just mentioned. How will this impact the laboratory? We would need to know that a patient has undergone this therapy. If we were working them up, they're going to have high levels of hemoglobin F. So we wouldn't want to spend a lot of time going down the wrong pathway. But then there's some also very interesting and challenging things to consider regarding the ethics of this. It's one thing to make an argument of going in and, and making a quick snip and you cure this terrible disease forever. But there's been a lot of concern about the ethics of going in and doing gene editing. Do you really know if there are other genes that get edited or not? And it gets very controversial when you start talking about germ cell editing. You can go in yeah. and edit a germ cell. So maybe someone wouldn't even be born with hemoglobin S. Yeah. Yeah. But then... That gets very controversial. We could even go in and use this CRISPR-Cas system to eradicate things we don't like, such as ticks and mosquitoes in my world. But should we be doing that? And yeah. then last but not least is the cost. It's my understanding this will probably cost a couple million dollars per treatment. So, yeah, so you think about that. So again, this whole the hemoglobin S trait arose in parts of the world where malaria is prevalent. If you think about where parts of the world where malaria is prevalent, they tend to be in lower resource settings from a healthcare perspective, right? And more low and middle income countries. So will those sorts of countries where the disease is most prevalent even have the financial system in essence to support the use of the therapy? Or is it going to be disproportionately in parts of the globe that are less affected? I mean, I saw a lot of hemoglobin in the laboratory you know, as a hematopathologist at Mayo Clinic, but the most patients that I saw with hemoglobin S and sickle cell disease was actually when I worked as a moonlighting physician in the federal medical center. So in the federal prison, right? Because there's a lot more African-Americans that I saw there than I saw in, in our practice at Mayo. It's, so you, it makes you think right away, most of those patients clearly would most likely not be able to be eligible if they had to pay for even be have a healthcare insurance plan that would cover that. That's in the US. So you start to worry about the ethical concerns you bring up, which are huge, the ramifications for society are very big, but then something we're already grappling with, and that is disparities in care, right? Are these sorts of things going to just accentuate disparities in care that we're already seeing and understanding that? And this is not the first, as you and I have discussed, one of the things that we're seeing through the Mayo Collaborative Services Biopharma effort, there are massive investments globally around gene therapy, right? And so that's why these things are so going to be so expensive is a one-time therapy for something that a pharma company has invested, you know, probably millions of dollars in developing. So that the way they see to recoup their costs is to make it expensive. But does that really serve society's benefit? There's a lot of challenges in the brave new world. I'll just leave it there. 
Yeah, and for sickle cell disease in total, there's about 100,000 people estimated to have sickle cell disease in the U.S., but there's millions worldwide. So it does raise the question of what should companies that can afford these therapies be doing to help the countries, the individuals in those countries who can't afford $2 million for a single therapy? And what about access? And then also what you mentioned about biopharma and investment, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these gene editing therapies in the future. Some of them will go through the FDA, but usually before then they may be available in other countries. And there may be the possibility that people will go to those other countries to receive this therapy. So it's gonna be very, it's gonna be a changing landscape of different types of therapies. Very exciting, but also some concerns in there to keep an eye on. Yeah, I agree. So from the macro perspective, really understanding the impact on healthcare, the impact on existing challenges we have in healthcare around healthcare delivery and disparities in care and equity and concerns around the price of therapeutics and all those things will come into play. But then going back just to the lab, we have to really pay attention to where these are being introduced into clinical practice because they could fundamentally change some of the things that we're used to seeing in the lab. Coming back again, I mean, when we see a combination of S- hemoglobin S and high fetal hemoglobin in an adult in our hemoglobin lab, it triggers a whole cascade of tests to determine if this, what's the cause of the high F, including I think now genetic testing. And so what are we going to see? What would, you know, if we didn't know the history, what kind of genetic, what would the results of genetic testing show if someone had this therapy and we didn't know it? I mean, this, this is just a start. It really does open a whole different set of things that we need to be thinking about from the lab perspective. And most importantly, again, a need for us to be engaged with companies when they're doing these, because these are all things that should be coming out. That's the purpose of a clinical trial is to develop the data to understand the impact on clinical care. And diagnostics are a huge part of clinical care, as you and I have discussed. So really making sure, again, that we're at the table, thinking about these things is going to become really important. Yeah, absolutely. So good that we're talking about this. And hopefully people that are listening find this interesting and remain engaged and at the table in some of these new therapies, because it's going to change potentially the way we practice. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully so. And I think it goes back to the theme, we really have to be thinking about innovation in the laboratory. Innovation, as you and I have talked about with AI and those things that really impact the work we do every day, but innovations that are happening in healthcare outside the lab that are really gonna change the way that we've, at least the observations that we're used to making, right? So it's, it's an interesting time to be sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, always great talking to you, Bill. Very interesting topic and I'll look forward to future topics. Yeah, me as well. So I might not be as tan, but I'm sure that the topics will still be interesting. So. <laughs> Yes. Well, thanks and talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.